Hilman Sore is an award-winning trainer to more than 15,000 salespeople and over 5,000 senior executives. He's also a sought-after speaker around the globe. Hilman is the co-founder of Coach CRM, a sales coaching software for managers. He's also the co-founder of Closed Loop, a management consulting firm. He's coached and consulted high-performing teams and companies that range from early-stage startups to Salesforce, Box, SurveyMonkey, Build.com, and more. Now, in this episode, you're going to learn all about coaching the player and not the play. Let's get into it. First, I want the audience to get to know you just a tad bit better. They've already heard the intro and heard your bio, but you have, what is it, six, eight books? Remind me of them. I have a count here for those that are in video. I have six, six right here. Yeah. Okay. So eight's the number. Eight's the number. So it's the published number on Amazon. Yeah. Hillman has published eight books all around and uh, around the topic of sales and coaching and, and enablement is, is my understanding as well. So highly specialized. Um, yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about your, your books and your, what that, um, you know, has really done to evolve your practice as a consultant. Hiding things under my bed, right? My dad would be like, where's the rope and car? Oh, it's in the room, you know, but uh, they never necessarily, you know, they, they never came back together in their original form, at least, right? But I found out how they worked. So in, mm-hmm. in the time that I've spent in being both in sales as a salesperson, and I started as an SDR before SDR was the term, we were called inside salespeople or telemarketers, and we were on the phone jamming all day long, right? And it was so much fun. I learned a lot about life in these right, experiences, exactly. right? You know? And um, so, and then progressing into management where, you know, they, they promoted me to my Peter principal, that place where I just, you know, didn't, didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I had been a good salesperson. So that's what you do with good salespeople. You make the managers, right? Right. And then, you know, on through the line and then eventually becoming a consultant, I became a consultant and I became a trainer because I hit the wall. I hit the ceiling of my level of knowledge where there were things I knew, you know, the five levels of of learning, right? Where you start with unconscious incompetence, you move all the way to, you know, some level of mastery, right? With unconscious competence. But I was at a place where I knew there were things I didn't know. And I wanted to know what these things were. I hate, I mean, whether it's language, whether it's science, I don't like when, when there's a body of knowledge that I'm not privy to. This really bothers me and I'm hyper competitive. So not only do I want to learn it, I want to like master this stuff. Right. So that's the way I approached my practice is I was like, so how does training work? How does sales actually work? What's taking place in communication and in, in a conversation with somebody? And my expectation wasn't that I would learn all this and then teach all of it to someone else. What I wanted to do was take it, distill it, get the things that are most critical for someone to understand that are actually going to move the needle on their performance or their confidence or, or their impact right. and be able to relate those things. So this is a long way of saying that over the course of my career, there have been things that I have experienced either in practice or either in scientific application, such as it exists in psychology and the world that we live in and behavior modification as salespeople, that Corey and I, my business partner, began to see as process that we could relate to other people. And we've got tons of it. We just haven't had time to get to the other stuff. But you know, of the eight that we've published, these were the ones that seemed um, both timely and relevant and um, the big heavy lift you know, triangle selling we wrote because we looked at methodologies and we're like, yo, some of these are antiquated. Like some of these right. things were invented pre-fax machine, much less 
internet. Like, you know, are you kidding me? Like, and the way that we engage with each other is very different now. And we found that there's a disconnect between what was being taught and what was actually being practiced. And that's why folks are on LinkedIn looking for tips and tricks and you can't make a career out of tips and tricks. So I wanted to create what I always wanted, what I always hoped had existed for me. And that's where we've slotted in. And I've got a narrow expertise. It goes deep though, you know, within sales and sales management. Very focused, right? Very focused. And I know my lane, you know, you won't find me writing tomes on on things outside of my my proven area of expertise. But yeah, that's that's where it comes from. Very good. Well, it sounds like you were hyper curious about, you know, the areas that you wanted to specialize in and you were you know, uh, aware of what you didn't know. Uh, and I think there's a statistic out there uh, that uh, I, I read it in a book recently where everyone, the guests in the show, talk, I think it's like 25% of people or sales managers um, are as actually as good as they think they are. That, <laughs> I you know, love to know how that study was carried out. Right. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Right. But once you identify that, I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing here. That's, that's really, yeah. you know, the point of this podcast is, to, to research tough problems in the market that revenue leaders are facing. And, you know, I can't possibly have all the answers. So why not record discussions with folks like yourself who are experts in the industry and, and, and soak up some knowledge. And it sounds like that was part of your process to writing these books was getting you a, an expert level of mastery uh, while also sharing those resources and maybe serving as a little bit of a calling card for your business as well. I, I won't shy away from that at all. <laughs> but, but you know, what's interesting is I'll, I'll put it to you this way. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a certain bit of a calling card and like, this is, this is who we are and this is what we do. And there's a certain level of lift that comes from that. The other thing that I think is critically important though, is that once you actually get beyond typing things into uh, a, a social media platform mm-hmm. where I can have a quick thought and I don't have to substantiate it. I don't have to defend it. It's gone as quickly as it was posted. The next day, nobody remembers that Hillman said this thing, right? When you actually take and codify your thoughts into publishing a book, it means, number one, that you've, you, you should have done some level of research where it's defensible, right? Where you truly feel as though if you're going to stand in front of an audience or if you're going to make a recommendation to a founder or to a manager or to a leadership team or to an individual salesperson, that you've done the work of being able to substantiate why you're saying this thing, right? And you've put it in a format that is intelligible. It's very hard to take you know, myriad different posts that are online, whether they're blog posts or even shorter stuff, and make sense of how you turn that into a methodology that you can be accountable to. Right. And, and well, we might de- delve into this a little bit when we talk about coaching, but y- you have to have that as a core construct because you can't hold folks accountable to stuff that you can't spell out. Mm. Right. So that was another piece of it is my own level of accountability to clients. And then us saying, this is who we are as a company. It also, let me tell you, talk about qualify and disqualify. Our first words are like, Hey, Derek, great that you want to do business with closed loop. Have you read any of our books? If you haven't, then yeah, it might seem like an impediment to the sales process, but I'm like, hey, here's one you can get through in probably about two to three hours on your giant multi-million dollar sales problem. Number one, are you willing to invest that amount of energy in, in reviewing it? Okay. Number two, once you read it, if you think we're crazy, we don't have to talk. If, if you think there's an application here, then you know we can have a conversation and you know what that conversation is going to be based upon. There's something you said earlier that I don't want to, to let go when you talked about um, the 25%. Say that quote one more time is 25% of people, salespeople think they're better than they are. The, or, no, they're as good as they true. think they are. Be, meaning 75% aren't as good as they as assume that they are. are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was, I, I love, and, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but paraphrasing something very similar, which is that 
um, what we think we know is the biggest impediment to learning. Mm. This is why I'm curious because I know what I think I know ain't right. <laughs> it's inside of the context of my little brain and my little glasses and my little focus and my microcosmic world. And it might seem right. It's my reality, but there's a whole lot of other reality happening around that I want to venture into so I can expand that and, mm. and become a better, better informed person. Great. Great. Yeah. And uh, I think the clients that work with you uh, would imagine are highly appreciative of you having such a pragmatic and formulated you know, process to, to, to your practice. In light of your practice, you have closed loop and you're also co-founder of Coach CRM. So what I understand from our, you know, our earlier conversations is that one of the areas that or the area you focus on almost exclusively is is coaching. Um, is that accurate between closed loop and uh, coach say, CRM? I, I would paint it a little differently. I would say that we are wholly focused on individual and team performance. Perfect. I think that coaching is a component thereof. Absolutely. But if the, if the umbrella is individual and team performance, there's things in there like strategy system, staff and skills, there's process in there. There's the application of training. There's, you know, the, the, the rigor with respect to management and process Good. across sales systems, yada, yada, yada. But um, within the context of that, it's all about how do we make individuals stronger and how do we in in turn, because they're they're they are not they don't happen in a conjoined effect, right? In turn, how do we create strong teams? And that involves management, leadership, and all those other pieces. Yeah. Very good. Well, let's let's jump in. I know one of the areas that uh I wanted to talk to you about and get your insight on was coaching for top performance. Mm. And Heading into a potential recession during, infl- you know, with inflation happening at the same time, we know 2023 is going to be a tight year, right? We're, we're going to see a lot of changes in, in business practices. We're seeing a lot of you know, changes and shifts in tech. Um, coaching for top performance and coaching in general, I think that's probably why it's a through line through all this is that it's all about getting the most out of our individuals and our teams, as you mentioned. So coaching is at the core of this. And I think one of the most important things that a leader can be doing at any given time is, you know, running effective one-on-ones and doing coaching sessions and working directly with their team. I've always said that our level of engagement directly correlates to our team's level of success. And this mm-hmm. coaching component is kind of what I'm talking about. So uh, let's talk about competencies in terms of uh, of people that we have on our team, whether it be an SDR or BDR or an account executive, um, talk to me about how do we get the competencies that we that we need out of someone? Like, how do we instill those competencies? How do we identify them? Once we have people on board that we think have met those competencies, how do we develop for those competencies further over time? I imagine you have some f- um, frameworks or processes that you could kind of share with us. And, <laughs> you do and have you... six of my books, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I do. So where where do you go with that? You know, I know it's a big topic, but uh, you know, it's it's hyper relevant right now. Yeah, Hillman never met a met, a, met an acronym or framework that he didn't like. So uh, the the book that we wrote, hiring, onboarding, and ramping salespeople. I want to start there because there's a framework called the Team Framework, and Team stands for Talent, Engage, Accelerate, and Mastery. So here's the idea: a lot of folks start at the end, and I love the way you framed the question, which is how do we identify competencies? And then how do we uncover where those competencies lie relative to where they need to be? Well, it starts with who you're hiring. 
So as an organization, and I understand lots of folks have already hired folks, and there's probably not a lot of hiring happening right now in some organizations, but just bear with me here. So if if you're saying that I got a sales team and let's take the BDR function, right? And we're looking for BDRs. A BDR in a company like Yelp has a very different task than a BDR and a company like Salesforce, right? There are different competencies that you're going to be hiring for. Within those competencies, there are acquired competencies, meaning these are things that Derek already knows how to do. And I'm not interviewing anybody who doesn't already have these basic competencies, right? At that level, it might be technology competencies. They know how to source online. They know how to leverage database. Maybe they know how to use a spreadsheet. Maybe they're they're functional on a phone call, right? They've got some basic business acumen and understand what it is that we do for a living, yada, yada, yada. These are acquired competencies that someone has to have before, we can call them skills, before they even get into my organization or before they've been worthy of, a, of an interview. Then, and this is where the competitive differentiation comes in. This is where you get, you get uh, real juice inside of your company, right? Then you've got to understand what are the competencies I can develop once I've hired this person? And where do we want them to be? So here's brass tacks. Here's here's just foundational stuff they've got to have on one side. And then on the other side, moving across their growth inside of my company, just in this specific role, what do I want them to be able to develop? Maybe it's subject matter expertise. Maybe it's a clear understanding of the job to be done for your specific persona. Maybe it's some level of depth and some you know ninja-like moves with some software and some tools that we use. Who knows, right? You know what those things are. And then you've got to understand internally Do you know how you're going to get them there? And this is where we drop the the ball. And so that's the big one, right? So here's what happens just on the hiring front. If we just parse this piece, if you know these things to be true, and if you've developed some sort of rigor internally to be able to get people from the acquired competencies to where you want them to develop, you have a competitive advantage because you don't have to go hire from the best school who's already done most of this training for you. You don't need to go get the pedigree of someone who had worked at, you know, one of the Fang companies or something along those lines. You can go get, I always call this the Scotty Pippen because I'm a huge Chicago Bulls fan, right? Old, old school Chicago Bulls. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can go get Scotty Pippen. 23 from, and 33. You know what again. I mean? Yeah. You go get, what, what it was, Central Arkansas, you know, wherever the heck he went to school that, you know, Jerry Krause found him while he was eating donuts. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the person and this person's a superstar. And here's the beauty. When you've got salary arbitrage and arbitrage across the globe with respect to where you can hire from, why would you not want to be able to do this as opposed to having to sit in Silicon Valley or wherever you might be located and get the best of the best there and duke it out um, over salaries and all these other pieces? So that's where the talent piece comes into play. Now, how does this correlate to your ability to coach? Well, you've brought people into the organization. You understand the individual gap. This is where the difference between individual and team performance, right? You understand the individual gap between where Derek is today versus where he needs to go. And one piece of that is going to be training. One thing to keep in mind, and this is where we engage folks. That's the E. I don't like onboarding because it sounds like you've finished. It's like, all right, they're on board. Now let's move on. And in fact, that's what people do, right? They spend a ton of time and energy in that first week of onboarding toward ramp. And then they just abandon the individual. It's like, all right, fend for yourself. Good luck. (laughs) <laughs> right. And the high seas come and you're like, yeah, just hold on, stay on board. Right. But, um, <laughs> never seen so that before. That never happens. Of course, not. everybody's got really robust professional development programs, don't they? Um, so the idea there being you engage them, get them rolling. Right. And then you move to the A, which is like, how do you accelerate? 
And so that acceleration becomes a combination of training, which is the development of skills, and coaching, which is the refinement of those skills and the utilization of those things in practice. One thing that's critical here is you cannot coach someone on something that they haven't been trained to do. If you've never taught me how to make an omelet, how are you going to coach me up on how to do it? I'm over there cracking eggs. I'm like beating it too hard. I'm moving it around too much. The fire's too high. Who knows? Gosh, I'm getting hungry. But you know what I mean? <laughs> this goes Ooh. back to your point about the book too and having your frameworks and having your yes. stuff dialed in is part of your client success. Yes. Right. Okay. This yep. is it. Being clear. Yeah. This is, this is where it gets clarity. Oh my God. Clarity is so key. And so here's the deal. What we do instead is Derek and Hillman start a company called, you know, Derek Hillman Tech. And we got to go hire some folks. And so we go to like Indeed or LinkedIn Navigator and we go scrape somebody else's BDR post. We do a find and replace on the company name. We post it and we get it. much. So you get get what you put out. You know what I mean? That's it. Do you think competency-based interview questions are a tactical approach to the hiring phase that you had talked about? You have these competencies in mind that are acquired, they should have in coming to the company. How do you vet for that in the interview process? Is it having well-crafted interview questions? Are are there assessments? How do you ensure that you're hiring for those competencies? Let's break that down. Yeah. So if if, if I were hiring, let's let's stick with the BDR example because we're already there, right? So from the BDR example, you've got to have a phone screen. And how important is the phone screen relative to the rest of the interview? It is the most important thing mm-hmm. because they're going to be cold calling. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what you look like sitting in front of me and how you manage it. You're not going to be sitting in front of anybody. Right. You're going to be on right. the phone. Hopefully, if you're emailing, then make it an email. Or, I don't know, you know, do something differently there. But um, the idea being that like people yada yada over what is probably going to be the most critical element of this sales hire, right? So one place to look for competency development was inside of that phone screen. There's, you know, there's an eight point screen and I can share it with you that you could maybe put in the show notes and share with listeners if you'd like, if you think that's beneficial to folks. But um, one of the last questions, which is teed up by an earlier question is actually, it's a statement at the end of it. You just kind of go, so Derek, you know, I appreciate you hopping on the call. We will get back to you, let you know, you know, whether or not you made the cut for, uh, you know, interviews coming into the organization. Otherwise, we wish you really well. And that's like it. This is after a fairly short interview. But it's also after you've asked a person, how do you go about getting commitments to next steps? Right? Now, this comes Love two questions layup. later. Mm-hmm. Two questions later. Mm-hmm. And what do you think 80% of people do once they're faced with their own job prospect telling them, all right, we'll get back to you. See you. Bye. They go, okay, thank you very much for your time. Right. What do you do with the rest of those folks, though? Say, well, well, help me. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. How did I do? Do you have any concerns about? Well, then you open up the whole conversation because you got a good one, right? Absolutely. But it's a it's a way that you vet for the competencies, real existence and practice versus someone saying to you, "Well, absolutely, I ask for the close." I'm very good at putting numbers. I mean, everybody's going to say that. And they probably think they do. Going back to your quote, right? 75% of us are thinking we're killing it. Yeah, we're not, right? We're so not as good as we think we are. Let's be objective. We right. are, you know? Right. So so let's bring this into the actual interview. So then you come into the interview and you can go through your whole, um, you know, if it's if it's your culture to go through the chronological interview, that's fine. But what I always say is you've got to have an experiential interview. Right. So you have to create an experience of what they are. And and you're doing this not as a gotcha. This isn't sell me this pen kind of a thing. Right. Create an experience that allows for the person you're talking to to demonstrate their best 
capability within the competency that you're looking for. So I'll give you an example. Sometimes we're looking for things that are a little nuanced. Like maybe you're looking for the ability for someone to work in a, this is just creative. I mean, let's say creativity. (laughs) Yeah. It's a common one. You're looking for creativity, right? Okay. Well, create an opportunity for someone within their own domain of expertise, not something wild to be able to demonstrate to you a level of creativity. So maybe I'm just riffing on this right now, yeah, right? Maybe, what we're maybe, here to do. Yeah. So so maybe maybe you're saying to someone, you know, just just an understanding. Okay, let's see. Somebody has to be creative with discovery questions, right? So instead of saying so, so what have you researched about my product and yada yada yada? Not fair. You could say, hey, suppose I told you you've heard of Chat GPT, right? Well, suppose I told you there's this thing called Time Machine GPT right now that allows you to actually go back in time, but only once to change one thing that's not going to have a butterfly effect on the rest of the universe. I don't know why I'm making this up. I'm going in my, my no, I'm loving this actually. <laughs> okay, good. Right? Yeah. So just say, this is the thing, right? When you say this to somebody, you say, how would you go about formulating and figuring out who would be a good customer for that kind of project? Mm-hmm. What creative juices would you get flowing thinking that this is the type of person that could have an opportunity to go back in time to change one thing, one time that no one would ever know about that wouldn't have any impact on the rest of the universe. Right. And you just get somebody thinking. Right. And if somebody gets all boxed in, is all weird about it, then maybe that's not your person. But if the per- the person who's like, well, you know what? I think it's that person who feels like one giant regret. That person, whether it's like that high school time, they went up for the dunk and missed it and everybody laughed at them, whether it's the whatever, blah, 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 blah. I think I'd go there. And it doesn't, it's just like, this well, it's is critical this thinking. Thinks. It's, it's reflective. Yeah. It's, you know, creative juices totally. flowing at the same time. And, and totally. I think it's, can we collaborate depending on who's running that interview as well? Am I going to be able Absolutely. to pick up what you're putting down and now kind of riff with you on this idea? Uh, and now you've got this opportunity to see what this person is like to collaborate with. And you've got this opportunity to also just see, can this person get a little bit wild and be vulnerable enough to not really care whether or not you think they're crazy. Like you presented this crazy option. Are they rolling with it? And I mean, I'm not saying this is the right thing for every organization. If it's part of your competency that you need someone to get out of the mold of just going and pattern matching every doggone cold email that's been written since Aaron Ross's book, then they want them to do something different and take a risk. This might be the way that you go. So you do this work ahead of time. You don't just make this thing up as you're sitting in the interview, right? Right, exactly. That's what I meant by the crafted competency-based questions. Once we have the competence, we know it's important to the role. We've done that due diligence. How do we vet people through that? And the the interview process is where it all happens. And one thing that I also, it's not a sell the pen exercise, but there is a role play uh, exercise that I like to promote within my engagements that clients pick up, uh, you know, keep the interview track relatively short as you can be, have, make sure yeah. it's inclusive and have the right parties involved. And it's not some, you know, vacuum effect, but, you know, at the end or during the process, uh, people in performance-based roles like salespeople and SDRs need to be able to demonstrate those skills, right? A programmer is going to have to program something and develop something <laughs> as part of their interview process to get a job. So as a salesperson, there should be a total expectation to have done some research, uh, come with some relevance to the interview, right? That preparedness, be able to write well-crafted emails to the parties that they interviewed with that touches on what you talked about, summary email, right? Uh, 
and, and then we need to be able to demonstrate the ability to, to hone in on these things. So um, we like to have the candidate, once they reach a later stage in the interview process, fill out a quick questionnaire. Who are two companies you would go after if you were selling this product? Who are two people in that company you would pursue? And then why? That's it. And let's have a conversation for 10 minutes when we get on the call. After we have that 10-minute conversation about what you were thinking and why you chose those accounts and those people, then we get into a scenario. Hey, this is my role. This is who I am. Give me a call. And then we get into once that cold call, that mock cold call is done, uh, we get into feedback. Well, this is where I think you did really well. And this is where, you know, maybe there's an opportunity and so forth. Let's run that back one more time and see if you can incorporate it. And then you, and this all happens in 40 minutes, yeah. right? And you're just flowing through it, but you re- also get to see if people are serious and if they really want these roles. Now, I know there's a lot of critical thinking around you know, you shouldn't be add too much friction into your interview process because people have other yeah. opportunities and people, but if people, if, an, if a candidate really is serious about getting into a certain industry or, you know, SDR roles specifically, a lot of people are trying to get into tech sales and they're trying to, so they need to kind of prove that. So anyways, I think these skill-based, you know, competency-based interview tracks are really where it starts, but let me transition on you to can the I, go forward. Something yeah, yeah, really yeah, go, please. Because you touched on something that is so important that, that I'm ch- champing at the bit to be able to, 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 um, please. to add, which is you said that you do this in 45 minutes and that you provide feedback and you say, let's go again. So when people are saying, how do you get coachable folks into your organization? How do you identify whether or not you've got someone who you can coach? Here's the deal. Right there is where you do it. If someone cannot move on a dime, and granted, we all have different coaching domains. Like some people would like to see it written. Some people would like to see it, you know, auditory. We've all got different domains of, of ways in which we learn. But if you can present this in a way that is your style, that is the way you intend to coach someone going forward once they're in your organization and they respond to it, you've got gold. And here's the other thing that I'll say, top performers love it because what they're going to realize Thank is you. going to work for Derek. He's not going to let silly stuff fly. He's going to make me better. And even in that 45 minute interview, whether I got the job or not, I got I'm learning. It. I'm gotten better. Exactly. That's it. Thank you for acknowledging that. I'm I'm glad to have that co-signed now. So oh, we're definitely going to drive that Absolutely. on going forward. Uh, not it's, it's not terribly difficult to put together, but uh, definitely something you got to be rigorous about. So speaking of rigor, hmm. why is it that organizations don't apply the same level of rigor to coaching on an ongoing basis? So we've gone through the hiring process. We're past that. Now we're dealing with uh, performance. Why is it that organizations don't apply the same rigor to developing people in those competencies to those aspirational points that we need them to be at in the business or that they were, they want to be as individuals, you know, the same, why don't we use the same rigor that we do to, for, for product and uh, for, for marketing, engineering, and, and, and this level of discipline, why is it that we are so loosey goosey and winging it so much with, with our revenue generating staff? I think that I, I, for one, I think that it's universal across the organization. Uh, if I, I know we're focused on sales and that's our world um, yeah. and, and I'll stay in my domain, but I, I don't think, I think that it's most evident in a sales function um, because they're, we're measured differently and there's a lot more transparency with respect to performance than someone who might be in operations or finance or even in engineering, you know, even, mm. even though they've got sprints and things that they're accountable to. Um I think one of the reasons why, I think there are a couple of reasons why. One one reason why is because the focus is on 
the entry point, not on the lifetime value. And and I don't mean to speak of people as widgets, but but you know, there's a lifetime resources. value. They are employee, resources. Right? Yeah. They are resources. And then they are assets to an organization, right? Correct. And I don't think that we focus or clearly know how to measure or manage the lifetime value of an employee. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. of someone in particular. I don't know why this person popped into my head, but she I, I started working with her when she was an SDR. Uh, I was a client. They're they're a client of mine, right? She is now a VP, and this is in one of the top SaaS organizations. She's been there her Hello. whole career, mm-hmm. her whole career. The lifetime value of her contribution, and you know, someone way smarter than me can figure out what kind of math you need to add to that when you think about her impact and her revenue. When you think about the impact of her on her team and her peers, the impact of her as a manager, the impact of her on her management peers, the impact of her on uh, the introduction of new products. And so, I mean, just like, so there's got to be a way to quantify this. Maybe this is the next book, right? Around how you identify what this is and then who's accountable to it, right? Who's responsible for it? Now, I understand that there's a part of this responsibility which lies on the direct manager relationship. There's a part of this responsibility that's going to lie on the division head. There's a part of this responsibility that relies on the company culture. There's a part of this, it, 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 you can parse it a whole lot of different ways, right? But there's no visibility into it. And where there lacks visibility, there lacks accountability, right? right. So I think one reason that there's less rigor in most organizations is we don't understand how to, and we don't understand why to, right? If I don't understand why I'm supposed to be coaching Derek, other than the fact that like, it's good management practice, I guess. And, oh, he's an athlete and he likes to have some feedback. Oh, wait, he's also, well, you're, you're, you're not this, you're not a Gen Z, but like, let's say he's a Gen Z and, you know, that's how you keep him in. You know, again, all that just sounds like lip service narrative. And it's all just this esoteric subjective stuff, right? Mm. But once you get to a point where you can correlate my coaching activity to both the impact on Derek and the value that that has for the organization, now I'm invested. So this is what we're trying to do with Coach CRM. You know, when we get deeper into the analytics, when we get deeper into where we're going in, un- in, in unveiling the black box that is coaching in a way that isn't punitive and is instead providing counter incentives, whether it's the individual contributor, the frontline manager, or someone in a leadership position to be able to support the frontline manager, or even just have visibility into what they're doing so that you can see where the organization is going with respect to performance improvement. That's what's critical. That's that's why we're building Coach CRM. It's not just a tool for managers and coaches to have conversation. It's a tool for this robust means to create continuous performance and to have visibility uh, therein. No, and and for those that are tuned in, Coach CRM is a phenomenal tool. I've had a chance to play with it myself. I haven't had a chance to utilize it in my coaching yet. I, I anticipate doing that, uh, but definitely it fills a lot of the gaps that a lot of us that who are active in this process are are engaged. You know, if you're coaching on a regular basis, everything that's missing in your process or you're doing manually has a very streamlined interface, and it plugs right into your CRM. So, a quick plug for Coach CRM there. Um, do you think the, uh, there's a lack of the, the lack of principles or the lack of consistent principles are a reason why we lack rigor around rev, you know, sales and, and SDR development? What I mean by that is, and I shouldn't be explaining my question after I've asked it, breaking my own rule. Um, <laughs> but when you think about accounting principles, um, you know, you think about uh, 
the finance area of our business, there's those consistent principles, engineering, um, they have consistent principles that they abide by, uh, your, your developers, your coders, they all have consistent frameworks that they follow. Do you think there's a lack of consistent frameworks and principles in this area? Because it's, there's so much of it, right? I mean, you know, we're all contributing to the space, but do you think the lack of consistency on this, it makes it hard to have that same level of rigor or, is there another issue under, that underpins that? I, I think that the lack of consistency inside of a company is Period. what's critical, right? Mm. And you just did it. You just you you have a certain level of rigor with respect to how you run your podcast and the way you ask questions. And because you have frameworks and rigor with respect to what you did, there's something that you caught that you just said, this isn't the way I want to do that because... You've established, you've trained yourself on somehow, you've educated yourself on a certain level of something, you've trained yourself on something you're now holding yourself accountable to, and it's easy for you to self-coach, right? This is actually where we want to go. When I talk about this, when I'm working with companies, I'm always saying like, look, this coaching should not be this, you know, arduous task that every manager has to do. And you got to show up with all these great ideas. No, you want folks to learn how to self-govern and how to self-coach and what the guidelines are. And then you check in and continue to to polish the diamond as it goes. That's what you want to do, right? You look at like pro coaches. The point is once you've gotten on the field and you're in a professional sport, you've been coached so much that you know how to self-govern. You know what you got to do. And now somebody's telling you something from an external perspective that you might not be able to see. And you know how to pivot on a dime with that. But you can't do it without the rigor of methodology or system. You know, we could parse what those two terms mean in sales, right? Because they, they go in different directions, right? True. System, process, methodology, whatever you want to call it. You can't do it without that. So here's what happens. You get an organization that has a sales person who became a sales manager and where they were working before they used something like Bant, right? And so that's what they know. They're comfortable with it. And we're always, you know, we don't like change a whole lot. If it got us there, we're like, let's keep riding that thing till the wheels fall off, right? And then maybe somebody comes in and introduces something new and they learn a little bit about a medic thing and now they get medic. Oh, but they also heard the Challenger book was a good book. So they read that. They've kind of like, uh, to the to the extent that they can, they've injected some things there. And, oh, wow, now Jolt is out. That's a thing that I should be fine. Now you got this whole hodgepodge of junk. Frankenstein. Frankenstein, right? And it, it moves and walks like <laughs> there's nothing sophisticated about it. There's nothing agile about it. Nobody knows what wakes it up and what puts it down. <laughs> it goes up, right? And you cannot coach based upon this because you also right. have such a limited amount of knowledge and expertise in this domain that you're afraid of becoming an imposter when you start Ooh. trying to tell your team how to do it. So here's the other reason real why, deep theory, Hillman. <laughs> right? Yeah. So here's the other reason why these frontline managers who've been recently promoted first time managers don't coach. One is because you gave them the promotion, basically saying, because you were a superstar salesperson. So Sarah, now you're a manager, right? Not because I believe in your ability to develop people, people. not because I believe in your, any of this other stuff. Right. So what am I going to default to? Because deals well. So you have to be able to manage people. Well, that's it. So I'm going to, I'm going to put on my superman, superman or superwoman vest at the end of every quarter and close some deals for people. Cause that's why you put me here. Right. You've also given them no system. So you got all people doing all this other kind of stuff. And, and this is where managers need, need, need to be systemic, right? And, and I don't care if you, if you, if you find the Frankenstein to be something that you can piece together to work for you, fine, to the extent that you can articulate it to the person who has unconscious incompetence. They don't even know that there's a thing out there that they should be doing. 
getting them to a level where they're actually able to apply this in their workflow consistently and where they can say, oh, I shouldn't be doing that thing I just did right now. Let me unwind that and go back in a different direction. If they can't, and if you can't hold them accountable to that thing, hey, I taught you this, Derek, and you're doing it anyway, what's going on here? Is there something going on? Is it a head game thing that like you just get intimidated when this other thing happens? Or is it an activity thing that you haven't practiced it enough? Or is it a skill thing that you just don't understand what we're doing? Help me so we can figure out what this thing or is. Or you just right? checked out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's just it. So all of these things, these things are like scaffolding. You can't start at the top, right? You've got to build these things up and incrementally allow people to have exposure. And the other piece here is, is, You've got to create an opportunity for coaching goes both ways. A lot of times I think we look mm. at coaching as being punitive, right? Right, right. It's always like, how do we fix behavior? How do we get this person to do something differently? How do we get this to change? Yada, yada, yada. How do we become this nag? And one thing that I've always said is you coach the player, not the play, right? Especially in sales. It ain't about getting into your call recording and me listening to five hours of your call recording and telling you how you're starting things wrong in every single one of these conversations. I need to coach the player. What's going on with you? Or we can just get you a one-to-many kind of a relationship where you realize that this is going to have a significant impact on all of your conversations if you just understand how important it is to ask pain questions, right? Like, I don't need to go in there and listen to every call. I, you need to go in there and listen to every call. Click right. a tool for you. And this is what I used to do back in those days when I was in a call center telemarketing. I'd listen to myself and I hated it. My manager wasn't over there listening to my, well, they would tune in every now and then, but they weren't listening to hours of Hillman and conversation and writing me notes about what I should and shouldn't say. It was my job because I had a construct that I was supposed to follow, right. right? So when we're able to do this and when we each hop into our role and responsibility and we've got tools within which, tools that we can use to apply to each of these activities, that's when you start seeing lift. And that's also when you start making this fun. But sorry, last point here was just that folks can start coaching based upon rewarding the things you want to see more of, you know, if positive reinforcement, Mm -hmm. positive reinforcement, one of the easiest ways out of that imposter syndrome, here's the beauty of being a salesperson. Here's the beauty of coaching sales is that coaching is really discovery. It's not about telling people what to do. That's training, right? It's about using the same tools of discovery that you used when you were talking to prospects. Say that one more time for those that didn't, (laughs) Catch that. That was definitely uh, one that we're going to capture. Coaching is what? Coaching is discovery. Hmm. All the tools that you use for uncovering pain, for active listening, for establishing rapport, for all these other things, these are the same, very same things that you're using in coaching conversations. When you are telling, you're training. And training is important too, don't get me wrong. But when I start telling you how to do something, I'm training you on how to do something. Coaching is a process of inquiry that helps someone to arrive at their own conclusions because based upon your own conclusions is the only place that you're going to have behavior change, not through me telling you what to do. Mm. Capturing that as well. Uh, well, let, let me let me transition on you because you, you touched on something earlier that I thought was really important. And I know we're running out of time, but accountability is one of those areas that's near and dear. And you were talking about having that conversation with the player through, you know, part of our coaching responsibilities is to, you know, identify when we're not doing well or when something in the construct of our responsibilities isn't, isn't going well. Right. So if I give you an example, say a top performing rep, uh, you know, hitting the number quarter over quarter uh, is, is, you know, hitting the number, but, not 
performing well with the team, right? Sort of maybe on the toxic side of things, uh, late to meetings, not participating in meetings, not engaged with peers, unresponsive to their SDR, you know, kind of a prima donna, if you will, and they're a maverick. And you have a culture of inclusivity and you have a culture of partnership and these sorts of things that are important to your credo. How do you coach to that? Right. I, we, we all know the coaching, like you said, is a lot of times punitive and someone's not performing well to the number. You got to get into the calls and the emails and what you're doing in day to day. And are you making enough calls and all of that? But there's other sides of this that can, you know, be difficult. So I think the reason I asked is I want to know if you think accountability is under attack. Is it hard to hold people accountable in, in today's climate uh, with a ton of warm and fuzzies that surround us? Um, you know, there's <laughs> right there. We're all very mindful right, of our mindfulness and the balance that we need to have between work yeah. and personal lives. And right. I think there's a certain expectation that employees have a lot of times, particularly in certain among certain generations of how they should be managed and, Right. There's this, you know, HR business partners aren't always making it easy either. They're coming in over the top on our on our frontline managers and making sure they're holding them accountable to what I would refer to as some of the warm and fuzzies and making it hard. And in some terms, in some circles, we're saying we're cutting the hands off of our managers um, to, to deal with tough issues that are systemic in our business, that are people oriented. How does a manager approach these tough, tough, tough coaching conversations in today's climate using the scenario that I gave you? So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, and, and I'm going to try to pick it off uh, one by one. First off, I, I love you alluding to warm and fuzzies, and and for those who couldn't see me cringe every time you said it, <laughs> I'm I'm you know what I think that I think that folks who have worked for me in a uh, when I was a CRO and when I've led sales teams and and even folks that I've done some interim work with um, would find that warm and fuzzy is not what describes me, um, but certainly accommodating and creating a space that is that is a conduit, a fertile ground for high-performing pe- people to be individuals. I am not a fan of creating a homogenous team. I don't think everybody wants warm and fuzzy. I don't even think everybody's inter- interpretation of warm and fuzzy is the same. Um, I'm not, a, I'm, I don't believe in this concept of servant leadership. I think Ooh. that leadership is inherently in service to the people who you are following. And, but you have to grab the reins and you need to demonstrate lead. some level of authority and freaking lead. Yeah. I think it's a great way for you to abdicate responsibility and just kind of do this dem- democratization of like, et cetera, et cetera, which just, if you want to be mediocre, that's fine. But you asked me about high performing teams, right? Exactly. So here's what I think is most important as someone who aspires to, or is running a high performing culture, you have to understand who you are what you can tolerate. There are people who can tolerate someone coming into a meeting late, being a little bit flippant about stuff and killing it out on the proverbial sales floor. I know we all kind of work from home in different places and hybrids these days, right? Um, There are people who can tolerate that and that's not an attack or a front on their authority and they get it done and their ability to tolerate it and minimize it can actually impact the rest of the team in a way where it's like, well, it's just Tillman. Yeah, he's quirky, he does his thing, right? That's something that can happen. That's something that can be, as long as this person is not antagonistic, as long as this person is not impinging upon anyone else's ability to be successful or to feel as though they have a safe space to do their work, it can be totally fine. I think that we blow things out of proportion because it's a little different. 
because it's not comfortable, but everybody is freaking different. So get used to it, right? The other thing is out of the gate, level set on expectations. This is the way we run our team. I used to, I had this glass office in, in one of my last uh, VP of sales roles. I had this uh, a glass conference room. And I'm a stickler for time. Don't waste my time. I try to be as on time as possible. And if I'm not, something tragic has happened to me and you can bet on it, right? And so I set the tone out of the gate. Look, our meetings start and end in half an hour. The reason is we all have things to do and the meeting is not the important thing. The information that we need to discuss here is, and we're all going to be respectful of that. If you're not here at the time that the meeting starts, the door's going to be locked, right? It takes one time for someone walking up to that glass conference room where everybody's sitting inside getting stuff done, yanking on the door and it's locked and not getting in for them to not show up to the next one. And I'm not saying this as bravado. I'm saying this is a Hillman thing. It pisses me off when you're not on time for something that I'm But here this for. is what I mean. That person right? could very well run to the HR department or someone yeah. and say, I'm not being included. Poor me. And you not gotta be set the tone in the beginning, right? You, right. You can't, you can't, it can't be a surprise because then they're, they're, they're right. They're fair. You didn't tell me that I couldn't be late, but when you there told you me okay. on the day I was hired that these are, there are very minimal expectations and here are the four and here's how I jam and here's what does not work for me. Right. Then you, you just, I mean, here's the biggest thing. I think that if we spent more time and effort, less time and effort on this tactical stuff and on the like the systems and the software and the reports and this, that, and the other, and more time invested in helping people who move into management understand behavior and understand communication. Then they are able to articulate this thing. You stay out of that world of Cartman's triangle where I feel victimized because Derek didn't show up on time. He's never on time. I mean, well, Derek's just never on time. He's never on time since he was seven years old. Why is he going to be on time now that he's 40? Like, Derek is regularly on time, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Not Derek with two R's. The Derek with the R and the E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though? Yep, it's just like, yep. let, let's not, let's not, we're humans. We yeah, let's all nickel and dime on some of this thing. Let's pick our bets. Come let's on. focus on the things that are really moving the needle. And yeah. I, I think there's a piece of that. And I, I, one thing you mentioned offline, we were speaking before on this topic was that in that example, sometimes that uh, element that that top performer or top performers might be conceived as producing uh, can be stem out of like our own insecurities, right? You know, are you hung up because Derek's ringing the bell and you're yeah. not, is that yeah. really where this stems from? Right. It, so the Derek knows it. Maybe I mean we I wrote about we we wrote about this in the uh, uh, five secrets of a sales coach. Right, we talk about the dynamic on the sales floor, and there's a woman in the book who is killing it, and she's letting everybody know that they aren't doing it, and she doesn't like the fact that she's on a team that's mediocre. Like exactly, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that top perform. That's that's that Kobe effect right there. What you just it. described, right? That's the uh, well, and I, I think part of this as well that we see is, uh, you know, you have managers, frontline leaders that are, are relatively new to their career and people management, like you said, and they have, they're not necessarily prepared for some of these tougher conversations. Corrective action conversations, accountability conversations can be uncomfortable. And sometimes the areas in which we're coaching can borderline on people's personality, particularly when we talk about how people communicate, right? And I think that makes it difficult uh, as well. So, you know, an area that I think is important just as we kind of wrap up is how we support our managers, right? And providing that level of enablement the same way that we do for our frontline, because you see it everywhere you go where uh, where there's an investment, where there's a, a mindfulness of enabling the frontline, 
we're really good about that as organizations, but we're not always very good about giving our new managers or even our experienced managers that same level of development and support or even accountability, quite frankly. So, you know, I've been a frontline manager many times over and often have felt like I was on an island trying to figure things out my own. And even when I've, you know, come into a, a consulting practice and working for a consulting company, you know, I was always wanting to get better. And we, as you evolve in your career, we know you get less and less pats on the back. That's just yeah. the nature of it. But it's not that that we're necessarily looking for sometimes for these frontline managers. It's what you're exactly talking about. And I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to start this pod is because, you know, there are folks that maybe aren't philosophically bought into the idea of bringing external parties in to their organization to help develop their people. But I think this is a great application, closed loop, coach CRM application, bringing that in your organization to bolster your sales leadership's ability on the front line so that we can address a lot of these issues, whether it's in the interviewing process or an ongoing development side. So, um, you know, I, I, that's, that's my final thoughts. Anything you close with, uh, Hillman? And, you know, again, I really appreciate you being here and making the time. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I think this is an important podcast touching on a number of really important subjects. And, you know, there, there is that piece of, you know, where does it fit in when you're bringing in someone external um, and I think that the biggest benefit is that there's often that piece of providing perspective, right? You're, you're, you're leveraging the expertise of organizations that have worked with a number of companies that have a perspective of knowing what is working across the industry. There's, you know, there are great consultants out there, our, our team included, that are working with 20, 30 organizations right now in this month that are all experiencing the same thing, that are able to leverage that feedback back to you. And, and help you to be able to, um, in fewer cycles, move the needle on the types of things you're just trying to move on. And the biggest key is what they leave you with, right? It's not about a crutch. It's about coming, someone coming in and providing you the reps and the regime and the, the, the practice that you can then take and run with and continue to strengthen your team and its ability to individually and uh, perform uh, ongoing. So anyway, I appreciate you having me on the show, Derek. No, thank you very much. Where can people reach you? Where would you point them to if they were looking to find more goodness from Hillman? Goodness from Hillman, I'd say uh, go to LinkedIn. There's some goodness there. And and from there, it all trickles out, doesn't it? (laughs) That's how it should be for a lot of us. Yeah. Uh, Well, very good, Hillman. Thanks again. Appreciate all your time. You have uh, a wonderful 2023 and hope to have you on the show again. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you enjoyed the interview and would like to support the show, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or on Spotify. Please also consider following our LinkedIn page. If you're an industry expert or if you know an industry expert that should be on the show, message us on LinkedIn at the Sales Consultant Podcast.